Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Okay, here's our special Sukkot episode. And one of the things I think would be good for us to discuss, Akiva, is the nature of Sukkot itself. And so, short answer question, asking you, when you grew up, what were you told, what were you taught that we celebrate on Sukkot. Harvest Festival. Okay, great. And therefore, what is the Sukkah for? They taught that it was the, the hut that the farmers lived in because um, they didn't want to go back to their homes from working in the field, which... You know, I'm going to just point out that as I'm saying this out loud, it's the same thing as saying how the settlers that came from Europe were so welcoming to the Native Americans and versus looking at a history book and or, or just, you know, looking at what actually happened. Um, so, yeah, there we go, Avi. That's the short answer uh, uh, lies that we were taught. Episode one. So... You're correct, and in fact, right, um, like many other holidays, Sukkot has many names, right? And uh, it is the time of the harvest, right? And so, sure enough, one of the things that we celebrate at Sukkot time is the harvest, and one of the things that we were, I think, generally all taught was that the Sukkah was the the place that they would build out in the field where they would at least rest, if not live in, while they were in the process of harvesting the fields. Okay, great. But when we look at the Torah reading for Sukkot, and when we look at the, the, um, the Kiddush for Sukkot, right, we seem to think it is com- something completely different. It says, Uviyom Simchatchem, right? This is a time, right? The holiday of happiness. It's the holiday, uh, eventually becomes the holiday of rain and water. And so Sukkot always struck me as the prime example of where we have these two, I don't know that they're necessarily competing. They might be complementary concepts to each holiday. Each holiday seems to have a component that connects to the, 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 the cycle of 
growing and planting, harvesting, um, and when we bring first fruits, and when we bring all of those things. And then it has this other sort of religious, spiritual component that has nothing to do with that. Right? In some cases, we say that the sukkah was to remind us of the way Hashem protected us when we were walking through the desert. And we say it's Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim. This is to remember leaving Egypt. And we lived in a place called Sukkot. So which one is it? Right? And again, they may be complementary. They, they may not necessarily be um, conflicting. And yet, every single holiday seems to have both of these things, right? When we talk about Pesach, we talk about eating the green vegetable, the karpas, because it's time for spring. And it's actually called Chag HaAviv, the holiday of the springtime. And yet it's definitely about leaving Egypt. And we say the Haggadah and we tell the story of leaving Egypt. When we get to Shavuot, is it Zman Matan Toratenu? Is it the time when we bring our, 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 when we recognize receiving the Torah? Or is it the time when we bring the first fruits? Right? So each of these holidays sort of seem to have this horticultural component, but also these religious components. And so I don't know that I have a, a, a good answer about how they come together or how they separate, but there seems to be these two components to each. And it makes me wonder if there isn't either a way to bring them together or at least a way to say that they complement one another. So, Avi, in, in response to your question about the Farmer's Almanac and whether or not all uh, of B'nai Israel are farmers, um, I'm going to ask another question because as a psychiatrist, you know, I, I look at some of the practices that we do and, you know, we often question why does this group of people do this? Why does this group of people do that? And we, we label things as cultish or, or odd. Um, I think it would be wonderful if you could just go over in a little more detail about the practice of the Hoshanas. And because I think as an outsider, walking in and seeing a bunch of men wandering around in a circle with a lulav and etrog chanting uh, may result in some questions. So why don't you go ahead and explain to us a little bit more about that and maybe how it relates to farming. So Akiva, Hoshanot come from the times of the Beit HaMikdash. It is a halacha la Moshe Misinai, meaning it is oral law that is handed down from Moshe through today. And the idea was that they would take the lulav and the etrog and all of the pieces that are connected to it, and they would circle around the altar, and they would say, Ana Hashem Hoshiana, right? meaning... Uh, God is our savior. And they would circle around seven times. And in later years, this was added on to local tefillot in order to remember what would happen in the times of the Beit HaMikdash. 
And I think that from an outsider's point of view, there are many things that we do in Judaism that can look odd and can look almost ridiculous without an understanding of it. And yet I think it's good and it's important for us to recognize that part of being Jewish and part of Jewish observance is to be different. Not that it makes us better, but that when you are unique, when you are special, it means you are different and that possibly you have a bit more responsibility. And so these things that make us different and unique, whether it be Hoshanot, whether it be putting on tefillin, whether it be the fact that we have to take off and can't work on certain days, those are, should, be, should be signs of surety in ourselves. Those should be symbols of pride and not things that we try to hide and not try to be things that we are embarrassed about because they are ancient, right? There is, and I, I think it's a good thing, that people are more and more interested in their ancestry these days. Knowing where you come from and not thinking that you yourself are the be-all and end-all of creation is a good and humble place to live. And so for us, knowing that we are part of a multi-thousand-year tradition and that we are part of links in a chain is a strengthening piece, is a wise piece, wisdom piece. It, 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 it is an important piece for us. It isn't simply a matter of we do this funny thing. We have a custom as part of Sukkot to invite guests. Some of these are real guests. But we also have seven historical guests that we invite into the sukkah, our ushpizin. And they are historical figures of significant note from Jewish history. Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, King David, Aaron. And so when we invite these people, Akiva, are we being delusional? Are we trying to invite their essence? What, what, what do you see as going on here? I see it as an opportunity to remember that, as you were saying before, we have ancestors, we have a place that we came from, we have people that we came from. And I think that in general, the idea that, okay, well, just like Eliyahu comes to every Brit Milah and every Seder, I think that just like the idea of, well, how could that be? It's impossible. The truth is for us to understand the idea of how 
and a, a dead or undead figure behaves is probably not within our realm to understand, no more than it's our understanding of how God operates. Obviously, these are different things. I'm not saying that these dead and undead individuals are the same as God, but the point is is that I think it's outside of the realm of our comprehension. And if we are taking it, therefore, from a literal sense, then let's take it from a literal sense and say, this isn't our place to understand. We're just going to do it because that's what we do. If, however, we are taking it from a metaphorical stance or a an education stance where we can say, these are people that were really important to us. These are people that helped us to become B'nai Israel and become the people that we are, and we need to learn from them, and we need to be mindful of what lessons they taught and what we can do and how we can do, um, then by all means, there's value to that. I think that a lot of times, and, and there's multiple cultures, it's not just within Judaism where we say it's important to learn from your ancestors and learn from those who have passed. And, and everybody that you mentioned has amazing lessons for us to learn from, both good and bad, quite frankly. And I think that those are really important things that if you want to invite them to your sukkah, by all means, invite them, and I hope they show up, and I hope you learn from them. So Akiva, many of us grew up hearing about the beautiful uh, mashal, the beautiful parable, where we talk about how each component of the lulav and etrog is like a different component of the human body, that the etrog is like the heart, and that the lulav is like the spine, the hadasim are the eyes, and the aravot are the lips, and we put them all together when we want to worship God. I'm hoping you could tell us more about ways we can look at these arba minim, these four species, and what we can learn from them. So I've, I've heard that, and I've also heard the piece where the etrog has taste and smell and represents someone who has good deeds and knowledge in Torah and basically we translate down from there where this one has has good deeds but no Torah this has Torah but no good deeds and this has neither and and either way the idea in either one of these settings is unity and the idea that we can the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Someone who has a spine and eyes and a heart and uh, lips generally more able to taste and see and stand upright and uh, have their heartbeat than someone who is lacking in, in these. Now, what's interesting is, is in both of these cases, you have the heart, which, as we know from a physiologic standpoint, pumps blood. It's obviously necessary for life. But we also have the emotional piece where we consider the heart to be the emotional side of things. As a psychiatrist, I take great, uh, great 
exemption to this idea because we know it's the brain. Um, but suffice it to say, we believed it was the heart, and we know that the heart, the body can't survive without the heart. Similarly, in the other example that I mentioned, someone who has Torah and good deeds, we would consider that to be complete too. So the question is, is why have uh, anything else with the etrog? Because clearly, if the etrog can stand alone, then you don't need the other things. And yet, we know that all of them together are what's necessary. So, yes, the body can survive with the heart and without the spine and without the lips and without the eyes. And we also know that in the literal sense, there is so many greater opportunity to be had with all of the parts. Similarly, we could say, well, you could just have Torah and good deeds. What else do you need? That's it. We don't, we don't need the people who, have, who are lacking. And at the same time, that's not reality. Reality is, is that there are people who are, who are lacking some in one place or the other. And, and take it away from the Torah and good deeds to just life. There are people who, no one's perfect. Everybody's lacking in something. And the idea that those who have one piece can invite in more to share and learn and grow. And I think they get back to the idea about Ushpizin and everything else that we've talked about in Sukkot. The idea that we're remembering our ancestors, we're remembering what unifies us, we're learning how to be together, how to learn, how to grow, how to change in a positive way, and how to be close to Hashem, which is really the ultimate goal, and that's why it's the Sholos Regalim. And next week, Avi, we're going to talk about Simchat Torah and Shemini Atzeret, and how that's not part of Sukkot, but it's the additional separate that gets tacked on at the end because of that relationship. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't use the Lulav and Etrog on Shemini Atzeret in Simchat Torah. Correct. And one could say that the idea behind that is when we have that closeness and when we share that closeness, then as we continue to grow, we meld and we don't need these additional pieces to be close because we don't have the Sukkah. We don't have the Lulav and Etrog but we still have each other and we still have the opportunity for closeness and enjoyment and for time with family and time with our friends and, and time with God and time to, to have that relationship unfold and continue in growth in that relationship. So that's what I think it means to me and why I think it's so special that we have all of these different pieces and why it is so much better to have the combination and to have, even if someone is lacking in something, to bring them in and to have them grow and to learn from each other because everybody's lacking in something. Unfortunately, the truth is nobody's an etrog yet. Here's the question for your sukkah table. We said earlier that Sukkot is Zman Simchatenu, the time of our joy. And for some of us, joy comes by having family home. And for some of us, joy comes because we have guests. And for some of us, joy comes because it is another Chag 
where we get to have good food and a good meal and see our friends and our colleagues in shul. And my question is, how can you make it a happier holiday for somebody else? Is it your wife or your spouse in the kitchen who's been cooking? Is it for your child by getting them a little present or spending a little extra time with them? Is it by somebody else in shul? Is it just by adding a smile or a compliment to the rabbi who spent weeks, if not months, preparing multiple sermons for all of these holidays? How can you make somebody else's chag a little bit happier? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.